I can certainly say I don't have a clue, but I can make some guesses. What kind of wisdom will people need to capitalize on for the positive change you talk about? These are terrible questions, by the way. Welcome back to the World After COVID mini-series of the On Wisdom podcast with Charles Cassidy and Nico Crossman. Over the next 20 minutes, you'll be hearing insights and forecasts from some of the world's leading thinkers on what our post-pandemic world may look like, for good and for bad, and what kinds of wisdom may best help us navigate this new world ahead. Igor, hello. It seems like it's been a while. How have you been? Wait a second. Let me get my glass of wine and, and, and uh, have, a, have a drink. That's how I feel right now. Like, yeah. no, seriously, I have a glass of wine right in front of me. I'm, I'm doing good. I, I think I'll feel much better in a second. Okay, yeah. here we Tell go. Tell me about it. I, um, this is, I think we're giving away our time zone differences because I am on, I'm not on the wine. I'm on a cup of tea. It's tea time here. I don't know, man. Like in the current time, <laughs> 9 a.m., 10 a.m., 10 p.m. It's always wine o'clock. Yeah. It's always wine o'clock. Yeah, I was like waking up this morning and I was like... Do I want to have another beer? And I'm like, stop it, stop it, Igor. <laughs> Wrong time. <laughs> Some sort of structure, please. You've had a heck of a week, right? You've been sort of involved in international uh, conferences, etc. Hey, are you still? That just is correct. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Uh, but you know, that's uh, the way it goes. Even though we all stuck at home, maybe because we all stuck at home, we feel much busier than ever yeah. before. It's kind of weird. Don't you feel like that? Yeah, I, I expected to have a lot of spare time to work on, you know, pottery, learning Japanese. It's not uh-huh. happened. I've played a lot of piano. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, I think my piano playing is getting a lot better. Although the neighbours banged on the wall whilst I was playing my recent audition uh, edition, sorry, of Stevie Wonder's "I Wish." That I thought was coming together quite nicely. They banged on the wall. I'm thinking they banged like with enthusiasm. They're like, "Yeah, go, Charles!" Bam, bam, bam. But you well, know. as long as it's not Beethoven or something like that, you know. Yeah, I think it's okay. But um, <laughs> that's sweet. right. Got to get on with the neighbours. So, Igor, today we are doing mm-hmm. the sec- second part of a two-parter, wisdom, wisdom for right. positives, I've got written down. What does that mean? Yeah. Like, Just give us a little bit of context. Wisdom for positives, well, you know, what are we talking about here? So we're talking about uh, what kind of wisdom people need to capitalise on for the positive changes or psychological or societal changes after the pandemic is over. Okay, so previously these uh, experts have been asked... What do they see as positive consequences of the pandemic? That's right. And now we're saying, okay, so say that those consequences do happen. What sort of strategies, what sort of approaches, what sort of wisdom are we going to need to capitalize on those changes? Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And not that that's necessarily how everyone took the question, but that was the intention of the question. (laughs) Yes. And uh, if the listeners are interested in that, they should just go to worldaftercovid.info and check it out, how different people react to that. And here we'll have just a snippet of a few responses and we'll talk about them. Yeah, I have some interesting ones. I'm not going to tell you who they are and I'm just going to begin. If you're ready, are you ready, Igor? As the Soviet pioneers used to say, always ready. (laughs) I like that, that's good. Now, the wisdom they're going to need is... um, the wisdom that a lot of social commentators have said we've already needed as we move to the Internet age. Uh, there's just a tremendous amount of information on the Internet. Um, a lot of it's incredibly valuable, but a lot of it is incredibly misleading. And a lot of it is uh, just outright fraudulent. And we have to become experts at being able to tell which experts to follow. Uh, who has a sound voice and who is giving us information that's going to mislead and maybe harm us. Um, 
Now, that's been true before the pandemic, but I think the pandemic has really brought this to the fore. And hopefully people become expert at telling who's the expert. Uh, I know that there's a difficulty in that because how can you tell who the expert is without expertise yourself? Well, that's a skill we're all going to have to learn. So this is David Dunning, and David is a professor of psychology at the University of Michigan now. He was at Cornell University for a long time, and he's originally from Michigan, and uh, he's a superstar in the field, former president of Society for Experimental Social Psychology, really good mentor, and he specializes on questions that deal with sort of epistemic critical thinking, Mm -hmm. misinformation, and even has an effect named after him and his cause, and not by him, but by uh, by the community. <laughs> he didn't, didn't name it dining. after himself. <laughs> no, he did not name it after himself. Some people do that. Right. They find it weird. Yeah. And so there is a Dunning-Kruger effect, even though actually Kruger was the first author, but, you know, that's how it goes, uh, <laughs> alphabetically. Yeah. And uh, so Dunning-Kruger effect is that about, you know, like if you're not very smart, I mean, actually one of the premises of Dunning-Kruger effect is anybody who tries to explain Dunning-Kruger effect or thinks that like they know Dunning-Kruger effect <laughs> probably show the Dunning-Kruger effect because they probably think that they know more about yeah, it than they I've been actually do. That, for sure. yeah. uh, so, so bottom line, <laughs> I probably will not be doing justice to it, so just to prevent the Dunning-Kruger effect from happening. But the Dunning-Kruger effect is to basically have the sort of tendency to overclaim and to, to, like this, people who are not very smart think that they're smarter than they are, for instance, things, things like that. Yeah, which is interesting because like you go back to those old kind of Socratic ideas about you know Socrates saying, I'm wise because I know that I don't know stuff. Um, that which is I don't you know how whether that actually happened or I'm not sure but that that's one of these ideas about wisdom that's passed been passed down. This kind of fits quite neatly to that because you're saying that's right. The opposite of wisdom is not knowing that you don't know. Yeah, exactly. I've heard it called the X factor effect or, or like one of those one of those talent show competitions. You know, like when people go on and they sing and certain people are so lacking in musicality they're not aware that they don't have any musicality and they get a sudden like shock when they come onto the program and you know they get completely destroyed by the judges uh, and there's different names for these shows in the states and probably in canada but in the uk i think i think i think x factor was one of them and i think i've heard this mm-hmm. stunning kruger effect also referred to as like the x factor effect probably for the you know the for the tabloids you know, you've got to give it a punchy name dunning kruger it's a bit like who are those guys x factor people are like oh tell me more yeah and they, there is even like questions and i hope dave will not uh, grill me on this uh, but there are some people like, is this really real is this more like a mathematical uh, just an artifact of mm-hmm. a noise in the data but the general idea is yeah so that if you don't have very high ability if you have low ability on something mm-hmm. you often view yourself as having much higher ability than you do yeah makes sense sue i got some questions uh, a couple of sure. things kind of, i guess that i found interesting i mean it's like this sounds like there's a bit of a paradox in there like this idea of ex- becoming an expert, knowing who's an expert. How does that work? Like, how are we supposed to develop the skill to sift out who we should be listening to? Seems problematic. Seems like something. Seems like a circular thing. There, I don't know how how you really resolve that. Do you, do you know what I mean? In the end, when he's saying, "Yeah, no, I, I, I think I, I agree with you. It's so what tricky. Do, what do we do?" Uh, 
Well, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, oh, you could. You had to say that, really, because you know, if you said you knew the answer, you'd Danny Kruger effect. That's right. <laughs> Can't take it to the other extreme and just say you don't know anything about anything. <laughs> That's not anything. Right? Like, I have no idea about expertise. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, look, I mean, like, I guess uh, to some extent, it is about uh, uh, figuring out through some cues when mm-hmm. the information that you receive is uh, fraudulent uh, or maybe misleading or maybe accurate. In the time of social media and a very fast pace at which information is spread, mm-hmm. uh, maybe something along the lines of just like checking and thinking for a second or questioning yourself, is this right? Yeah. Instead of right away retweeting it, uh, yeah. maybe the first step to go. Well, so maybe that along those lines, uh, you can certainly do some, uh, some things uh, to prevent uh, this type of uh, misinformation from spreading. Now, whether this will help you to identify who the real expert is, well, uh, the, real, the question who the real expert is, that's a very complicated question. Uh, because see, even yeah. experts, I mean, even if you find like, this is a good expert, I mean, whether they are accurate, it's a different story. When you say, before you retweet it, working out whether it's right, I mean, just zooming into the, that a little bit, do you think that's something along the lines of having a checklist? Like, is this a credible source? Like, is this yeah? Just like, like asking yourself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just asking yourself: Is this a credible? Uh, apparently, there's some work by Dave Rand and uh, Gord Pennycook. We had Gordon the podcast. You uh-huh, remember yeah. him? Yeah, and I do. That suggests that, like in the time of COVID nineteen pandemic, like where there's a lot of misinformation on the news, uh, that even just like checking uh, can be effective. Now, I mean, they may be checking before, they may be checking after. Uh, and uh, both of those could be effective. Just like spending some time, just a second, asking yourself that question apparently is effective uh, because often you just like accept it, especially if it aligns with your ideology or your mm-hmm. prior beliefs and you just like retweet it immediately mm-hmm. and that can be damaging. Yeah. And I suppose the information that is going to be coming into your feed is probably going to be stuff that you already uh, are supportive of because you choose who to follow, etc. Right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, unless there are some uh, agents who try to, you know, feed some additional information to you to promote yeah. a certain agenda. Yeah, I quite like the idea of giving people more detail around what we mean when we say check. You know, and I've heard like Tim Harford, like who um, he does the what's it called, the Cautionary Tales podcast, and he writes for the FT and mm-hmm. stuff and Radio Four, and you know he he talks about you know there are specific things you can tell people to look for. You know, like, are we missing some data here? Has this data been selected from a larger group of data? You know, giving people concrete things to check rather than just just to say, check it. Yeah. Because, you know, um, right. that's quite but, hard to do. Right. But, uh, you know, I, I kind of agree with you, though, like on this question of like how to become experts. What, what the hell does it even mean to become an expert in something, especially mm-hmm. if you're not and yeah. uh, if you're all alone and sitting at home? And it concerns information in which you... A, but, yeah. don't have prior knowledge, and B, yeah. it's constantly evolving. But there, there could be flags that perhaps can filter out people who are clearly not experts. Maybe we could at least start there. Like, it's true. Uh, but that's, in, not, that's not the same thing as becoming yeah. an expert. It's more about like, you know, preventing, uh, uh, recognizing obvious BS. Yeah, yeah. Which is Gordon Pennycock's, one of his specialities, right? <laughs> Maybe. So, and the other point about this was just, this is a kind of theme that's run through uh, a few of the the themes, it's this idea that the pandemic is acting as an accelerator. So this idea of there being false information around us needing to be getting, becoming more sort of skillful, working out what to yeah. believe and what to pass on. Right, that's right, not right. a pandemic-based phenomenon. That was very much right. alive and well. But the pandemic is, again, just sort of putting it on steroids and making it more and more yeah, important. Yeah, that's right. 
Yeah. All right. I don't Can agree I? with that, by the way. You, you don't? No, no. I think there's a misperception. Oh. And, and it's fascinating. Okay, let, tell uh, me well, more. Let me, let me explain. Yeah. Uh, so this idea that we had, especially at the beginning of the pandemic and uh, throughout 2020, I think, that things will just start changing so much faster and everything is getting faster and everything is moving so fast. I think it's just basically projecting uh, the shocks that we all experience being stuck at home. Uh, but one can certainly put up the hypothesis that, uh, yeah, there will be some changes, obvious changes, because of you know health-related concerns and so on, uh, geopolitical changes. Mm. Inequality will probably be changing and becoming worse. However, whether it will become more dramatic or not, well, I mean, actually, hold on a second. You can also think that in the time of the pandemic, it's almost like time freezes and everything stands still because all those kind of programs that were uh, you know, uh, developing, they're uh, not developing anymore. Uh, uh, <clears throat> in the media, in the cultural domain, sure, you can still record music, but making movies is much more challenging. Yeah. So transmitting information through those channels becomes harder. So what I'm trying to say is that it's a viable hypothesis that uh, you could also expect that uh, some of the process will be changing slower because uh, people uh, are not relying on as many as diverse media sources. And indeed, actually, for in terms of the evidence, we see that uh, the amount of change that has happened in 2020 on various societal domains, be it prejudice or well-being, you know, everybody thought it would be horrible and everybody will get depressed and lonely mm. and uh, anxious. And sure, that has happened, but not everybody and not everybody to the same extent and actually much, much less than people predicted. That is interesting. So a lot of the activity that was happening has paused. So we're just sort of in this right. in-between phase, I suppose. And, and we also adjust, adjust much faster. You know, like mm. uh, humans are uh, creatures of habit. And we develop habits and we adjust to those habits. And our sort of like standard for what is normal. Mm. Well, okay, nobody I think thinks that whatever we live through right now is normal. Mm. But at the same time, our well-being is like, I'm fine. Like, I'm fine. I'm like, as long as I'm like uh, safe in my home and I'm mm. in my super privileged position that I'm in where I can, you know, mm -hmm. work and live and uh, don't even have to go to the supermarket if I don't, if I choose not to. I mean, I choose mm -hmm. to do it, mm -hmm. but I could uh, arguably order out all the time or have people deliver it to my doors. And so in my privileged position, it's fine. It's fine. I mean, it's not great, but it's fine. And so there's this uh, adjustment uh, that happens. And people didn't think about that, I think, half a year ago, uh, that this will happen. Yeah. I mean, what is the – do you know what the data is around well-being? Like, because it's a lot of talk about um, – I remember when we spoke mm -hmm. to Sonia Lubomirsky, she was saying actually it wasn't as bad as, you know, well-being hadn't taken as much of a hit as expected. But yeah. then where I, yeah. there was um, – and I can't remember the name. One of the interviews. Jean yeah. Yeah. She talks about studies which show that it is, that has been quite bad for well-being. So I'm Well, sure she also thinks that everything is because people are on social media all the time. And <laughs> poor kids are that so, the reason why, uh, why they're all going crazy, which is also a questionable uh, proposition, in my opinion. It's like, like they're really going crazy or just doing mm. things differently. Mm. Um, but the re main reason, according to her, is because they're all spending time on, on social media and on their phones. And mm, mm. That's all of our additional factors. Uh, the evidence suggests that uh, there's a huge misperception, both among the experts and among the lay people. I mean, we just had a, a preprint about that out where we actually tracked down the 
national representative data, at least for the United States. Mm-hmm. And again, these are averages. We're not talking about individual subgroups of the population because obviously there are some subgroups in the population that don't do as well sure. and have probably suffered tremendously and continue suffering and will continue suffering even more. Mm. But on average, the, the well-being, yeah, experienced a bit of a hit, especially if you compare pre-pandemic to uh, April. But then subsequently, the change between April and, let's say, October, November, December mm. of last year has been pretty flat. Yeah, whenever lockdown happens, people like right away, like uh, at least at the beginning, experience some kind of depression in their well-being. And subsequently, again, like a slight adjustment. So there's not, you know what I mean? There's misperception. The interesting thing is that people predicted the opposite. People predicted that the well-being will go down horribly. Mm. And when you ask them retrospectively how much did it go down, they think, oh, yeah, it went down horribly. So like the predictions and like assessments of how much things change do not at all correspond to the reality. Interesting. Well, that's, I suppose, good news. Bad news for predictions, but good news for well-being. And not only for predictions, though, it's also bad news for retrospective assessments. Yeah. So we have this illusion that things are much worse than they are. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you clarified that because uh, you have righted one of my misconceptions and probably a pretty pretty widely held one. Um, yeah, yeah. It's actually, like a lot of experts have this misconception. So I think you have another quote for me. I do. Uh, I was just going to drop in, by the way, that um, David Dunning's was from June, 28th of June, or as listeners will know, three days after my birthday, 28th of June. Fantastic. So, all right, let's dive into a new quote. Sounds good. So this pandemic, because it's been unprecedented uh, within most people's lifetimes, uh, and the means of mitigating the pandemic have required sudden changes in individual behavior, sudden changes in in, in public policy. Uh, It's been hard. And and so naturally, folks have made mistakes. Folks have screwed up. You know, at an individual level, this has happened. You know, people have blithely attended church services or gone to nightclubs, and as a result, have passed on their incipient infections to other folks. Uh, government officials in lots of countries around the world have uh, been slow to respond or reluctant to take uh, to take actions that we now know could have prevented millions of infections and thousands and thousands of deaths and uh, and that's a it's a terrible tragedy and it'll be a even perhaps greater tragedy if these individuals fail to admit their mistakes fail to uh, to learn from those mistakes but and this is i guess kind of where this wisdom comes in that if uh, if people and that includes ordinary people like you and me, as well as government officials, uh, if we have the wisdom to, to critically self-reflect on, uh, on the mistakes that we've made and to learn from them, uh, then ideally we'll be better prepared to respond swiftly and sensibly and, and thoughtfully uh, to future challenges. And, and if so, then something positive may come from this. I like this. This is um, this is from two days before my birthday, twenty thirty seven. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> so, uh, who are we listening to, and then we can kind of get into it. So, this is Mark Schaller. He's a professor of psychology, another psychologist. Gosh, yeah. uh, this is he's from Canada, University of British Columbia, and he's a brilliant thinker. Has contributed a lot to the study of social and personality psychology. And the reason why I wanted to interview Mark. Besides the fact that he's really a smart guy and mm-hmm. just wise, I would say, 
is uh, that he has actually, he's one of the few social psychologists who before the COVID-19 pandemic was very interested in the question, how do infectious diseases and prevalence of infectious diseases change our attitudes and perception of other people? Mm. And so he has done the work uh, within sort of evolutionary psychology. The claims are not about sort of like he is the disease and how right away everything changes. It's more like about sort of are there some kind of dispositions potentially that we have that when we see people who are coughing or who seem to be spreading some infectious diseases, how do we then react after that? Interesting. So he'd already been doing this thinking ahead of time. Yes. Yeah. Yes, he has. And, uh, and this is from uh, June 23rd. The reason I kind of was drawn to this is mm-hmm. because this idea about um, mistakes being made, learning from mistakes, etc. Um, and it kind of reminded me of a, a culture that sort of exists in, I suppose I'm thinking of in the political world, when if someone makes a mistake, it seems that the the first reaction from everyone is, you know, will you be tendering your resignation? <laughs> That's like the go-to response when someone in public office makes an error and this this has happened during the pandemic of course you know whether it might be charitable to call some of these things mistakes they might just be you know people acting out of privilege and feeling they don't need to re, you know follow rules that other people have to but this just kind of natural loop that happens when someone when someone makes a mistake in public life that the natural thing is to ask them to uh, step down from their position uh, it doesn't seem very wise or helpful because you're what you're essentially doing is wasting that expertise. You know, like if someone, you know, has made a mistake and they've declared it and admitted it and learned from it, hopefully, it would seem like they could still be useful in that role. But what we tend to do in a sort of like a vengeful way is just we want them to be punished. So we want them to remove, be removed from their privileged position. It seems counterproductive to me. Is that, does that make sense as a, as a thought? Yeah, I mean, uh, pragmatically, you could, of course, also say that uh, because... We're in a pandemic, changing public officials would be, it has some costs associated with Mm. it. And so you better like stick with those even, uh, there's this phenomenon that that, that everybody's like uh, ringing behind the leader, whatever it's called, uh, in the time of a crisis uh, in political science. And uh, even if that leader is making mistakes, we'll still do that. I mean, it didn't help. I mean, unless you're Donald Trump. Yeah. Even though there's still some people. I mean, okay, let's not go there. <laughs> let's uh, but uh, right, uh, right. But like the point is, uh, yeah, admitting mistakes uh, in the time of a pandemic, um, you often may not have a choice than letting people continue doing it because the costs of replacing the official would be too high. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think I think it gets more complicated in a pandemic because if someone, say for example, breaks breaks the rules and you know doesn't doesn't in in public office and doesn't adhere to the rules that you're asking the public to follow that mm-hmm. that can could lead to a widespread lack of adherence so it could make sense yeah, to Yeah we have experienced that we have yeah, experienced right. that too, so I suppose it's, yeah it's different in this context that and, and maybe people need to be made an example of but I again this is something that's happened prior to the pandemic that if people make an error and it comes out it's expected that they will leave that role instantly and it just seems like that's a waste of expertise yeah. um i guess it depends on the type of uh, situation type yeah. of uh, a mistake yeah but it's it, we're not in a culture that is very forgiving of mistakes and that doesn't seem like it's going to benefit our culture very well yeah 
probably not. I mean, I, I don't know, like, uh, you know, like making mistakes and then making them again and again yeah, and again. No. Like, uh, we will certainly see that with the people, you know, easing the lockdowns too soon. Uh-huh. I've seen that in the US, uh, I've seen that in Canada, or not announcing the lockdowns right away when you need to lo- announce them. It's like, yeah. let's, uh, we will be going in the lockdown. Let me see. Um, by the end of the month, I give you all another three weeks. Yeah. It's an emergency. It's like, yeah. wait a second, is it an emergency? Or are we still having three weeks? Yeah. Uh, what's going on here? And yeah. uh, those are clear mistakes. And uh, uh, I, I see at least here in Ontario, people do it all the time. Yeah. Or the um, government officials. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Making it a little bit more personal, Igor, uh, Mark here in this um, interview says mm-hmm. we ourselves as individuals need to, to be comfortable and honest about sharing mistakes yeah. that we've made. Um, so, Igor, over to you. I want you to tell us about all the terrible mistakes you have made in response to the pandemic. Or maybe just pick one because, you know, we probably don't have time to go through the litany of errors. In response to the pandemic? Well, like, do you think there are some ways that you've behaved or responded that have in retrospect not been the right thing to do i mean i'm going to answer this question myself so don't i'm not putting you on the hook (laughs) what about um, you okay uh i think um with regard to the pandemic the first thing that i think i was wrong like many other people was uh, i underestimated uh the gravity of the situation Mm. um or maybe i just chose to ignore it back in february i thought uh, now, by, by March, I was very aware of it. So, like, actually, mm. at the beginning of March, I was uh, shitting my pants, yeah. uh, more so, much more so than other people. But I do remember that in February, I didn't take it as serious. I mean, I was following the news, yeah. but I was not expecting it to take two or three years now. And the other thing that, uh, that that was just wrong, but it's not like a behavior. I think it was like mass sort of like delusion that we all had in the Western Hemisphere. Mm. And I think... My mistake was like, uh, yeah, the masks at the beginning, I was too naive and I was following whatever CDC and the Canadian government officials were saying. I was like, yeah, masks are not effective. And I was like, yeah, yeah, masks are potentially not effective. And I was like, why am I even saying that? I guess they mean, and it's like I decoded it, but I would not, um, I, I was more like saying like masks are more effective for protecting other people from you than protecting you from other people. So that was sort of my, and I think that's my mistake too, because I was like discounting the, effectiveness of mask wearing for yourself like i think it was more like fathers interesting so why do you think that was was that just because there's like too much information to analyze and scrutinize carefully at some point you've got to sort of say well this is from the cdc i'm gonna trust that source or like well um to some extent uh, i think a lot of people like myself were underinformed on the one hand and uh, did not think clearly uh, in uh, late March, early, mm. like actually late March, yeah. Mm. And the other thing is, yeah, like if the government and uh, public health officials, the official party line is that please don't buy masks in mass because they're not that effective. It's like, okay, I guess they're not that effective. They're saying that. And of course, uh, you know, like they should have communicated differently. So I, maybe I'm blaming others, or, but I think it's, yeah, I was not as critical in reflecting on that as mm. I should have been. Mm. Interesting. All right. That felt good. Uh, nice, nice. That was cathartic, Eagle. Really? I, should, I mean, if you would have asked me what, what uh, all the other things that I have done over the course of the pandemic that don't have anything to do with the pandemic, <laughs> just, we would spend another three hours. Yeah, right. That's a spin-off podcast. We don't have a time for all the mistakes Eagle's made in the last 12 months. Come on. Come on. That's another podcast. We should do it. <laughs> all right. That is me done. I Excellent. hear you've got some um, 
saucy comments coming. So let's let's hear what you got. Sounds good. There is a, an idea in uh, in quantum physics that says uh, that particles are entangled with some other particles. The entanglement idea is that for each particle in this universe, uh, there are other particles that are a kind of uh, connected in a symbiotic way. And whenever you do something on one particle, the other particle that is far away in a different place in the universe is reacting as if you were acting on, on, on him or on it specifically. So the idea of entanglement is probably one of the sources of this social consciousness that is going to develop the more we enter the 21st century. So if you wish, this is something which is fascinating if, if we are to experience it. What happened in, in the last century was a similar process uh, because uh, you know after the uh, uh, the spanish flu uh, we started developing that idea of globalization uh, that uh, you know was the main idea of the 21st of the 20th century and we achieved a lot of things because of that paradigm uh, combining forces combining entities combining uh, uh, nations, etc., etc., in order to multiply uh, force of uh, of unity, uh, but globalization is a primitive stage of uh, of uh, understanding how we are connected, because uh, the the uh, the globalization paradigm is based on a voluntarily kind of uh, of mindset. If I want to be part of uh, a group of, um, let's say, institutes or nations, then it's my decision to make. If I decide that it's not uh, doing me any good, th then I retreat and that's it. But uh, th that's not a paradigm that uh, can avoid uh, such a crisis because, you know, the um, World Health Organization was based exactly upon that idea that it's you know it's a voluntarily kind of uh, institute and it, that it didn't have any um, any uh, let's say uh, authority uh, to influence the nations to uh, uh, to act upon uh, their uh, guidelines. So we will be able also to develop new uh, institutes in the 21st century that will reflect the idea that we are really. Uh, connected in a symbiotic way, and and those institutes will uh, will be given uh, authority to, uh, to to bring their uh, decisions and their suggestions uh, into play, even though uh, nations and uh, other uh, let's say cultures will not accept those uh, decisions. We will be giving them. Uh, a lot of uh, power to be able to uh, institute their ideas. Okay, that is uh, that's pretty deep. I'm kind of mm -hmm. looking forward to getting into it. Who are we listening to, Eagle? So this is uh, David Pasik, and David is one of the futurists that I had uh, mm -hmm. in this interview series. So he specializes on 
technological, social, and geopolitical futures. And uh, yeah, so spends his time thinking about what will the future look like. And he's from Israel. Okay. So could you like tease apart a little bit this idea what's different? Because cause, cause he's sort of saying, yeah, everything is weird. You know, everything's into. He uses this sort of physics metaphor. I'm always a bit. Uh, my um, my alarm yeah, bells please, ring. Please please tell bit. me. Yeah. What, what do you think about that? By the way, this is from uh, early September. Early September. Yes, no, my my alarm bells always uh, ring whenever anyone refers to quantum physics um, oh. as a metaphor. Why is that? Well, because it seems like essentially quantum physics is a not very intuitive part of physics. Um, yes. So even for physicists, they say we don't totally get how this works. And I think that opens up like this little wedge that people stick all sorts of ideas in. Um, and I think quantum physics often pulled pulled into to, to make points, which um, I don't think quantum physics is necessarily making. Does, it just seems like it's a bit, it's a, a stretched and pulled into some strange uh, directions and taken out of context. But is, it like, is it because like, uh, unless you freeze everything to, you know, almost zero Kelvin, uh, you, you can't really talk about those processes. So it's like entanglement, entanglement around the world. Everything is yeah, like, you know, it, I mean, that's I a like, good yeah. example. It's like entanglement's the thing. Yeah, it seems to happen. But it does, I mean... Zero Kelvin. Yeah, yeah right. And and he's not he's not saying that these are quantum effects at all. But it's just yes. uh, just a, me personally. It's a metaphor. Uh, yeah. it's, it's a metaphor, and that's totally how he's using it. And that is yes. often how people use quantum physics but it just seems like i think you've got to be really careful um but his point is still valid and he's talking about this idea of everything being connected essentially but he's saying that globalization is like a voluntary process but the reality is that this in, this social entanglement is n- a non-voluntary process like y- you can't choose to not be socially entangled so our sort of our global systems our global bodies or institutions are a little bit behind the beat and we need a new form of institution that is kind of has more authority to wade right. into is that is that kind of where he's coming from i think so i mean i think he comes from this perspective of the need for international cooperation not the choice of international cooperation but the need of international cooperation and the institutions effective institutions because uh, like many others i think he views current institutions, including the UN, potentially not as effective as they could be because they are, you know, the remainders of the 20th century. Yeah. Are you, do, you, do you get the sense he's pro-globalization? He's saying that, or, or is, he, is he sort of um, agnostic? He's saying, I'm not for this or against this. It's just the reality that we are connected. So unless our institutions catch up, like we're playing the wrong game. Yeah, I think I think he's more of a uh, well. I don't think it's like it's the reality. I think it's it's the future. Mm. So that's where he's coming from. So in order to survive, in order yeah. to master this pandemic, yeah, we absolutely. It, it, it's it's like this example from uh, the Economist issue uh, of the intelligence unit of the magazine Economist, uh-huh. where they said, "Look, uh, if you think that the pandemic will be over in the next few years, you're mistaken." Because only if it's completely eradicated in all parts of the globe, yeah. uh, we can really talk about it being eradicated. But that will not happen because of the 
uh, vaccine grab that is happening oh, yeah. around the world, where yeah. the rich countries like Canada yeah. uh, are taking all the vaccines that are available, and the poor countries are just starting to vaccinate, and they will definitely not be in a position to have vaccinated everybody in three years' time, which in turn would lead to mutations, which in turn would lead to uh, so what do you need in this type of context? Well, you need some kind of effective bodies because clearly WHO, which is a voluntary organization in the first place and is with a very murky and complicated funding structure, WHO is not effective and UN is not effective. And so then it opens the question, so who, who can be effective? And uh, I think David suggests that there will be a need for some organizations that will be able to... Uh, champion the ideas of cooperation and enforce them. Yeah, I obviously think that's a good idea. But I also don't know how we'll get from here to there. Uh, unless, of course, the pandemic serves as a, a case in point and people go, oh, yeah, OK, we better start operating on that level. Because, you know, sovereign nations will need to give up some sort of authority and um, to these these new bodies yeah. that he's talking about. And Yeah, I don't, I don't think know, it just... will happen. Do you think it will happen? I mean, uh, with China... I don't know. I really don't. Um, I I think it should, but you know, I don't see. Well, you know, there's the kind of a movement towards pulling out of international sort of, you know, taking more. Well, it's Brexit, isn't it? Take the take back control. It's like people don't want international bodies who don't understand our local needs to have any authority over them. So it seems like if anything, things going the opposite direction. It's much easier when you have a threat that you can recognize and point fingers to. When you have something like a virus that is kind of prolonged and invisible, uh, it's a threat, but it's not an essentializable, identifiable threat. Like if it was like aliens that would be infecting us all with COVID, it would have been much easier to put all the people together and say, hey, we need to fight this alien. That's right. We need Uh, need, uh, the watchman again. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Who would have thought? Yeah. Let's move on to the second one. What do you got? So uh, certainly perspective taking, something that you've written about, um, because we are at, we're in such a fractured time in our society. We really can't continue like this. Um, uh, We need to be able to think about people who are in different shoes and in different positions. For example, I was just listening to the radio today and hearing about an African-American man who lives in a neighborhood in Boston called Dorchester, and he happens to be voting for Trump. And he was saying he's doing that because under recent Democratic presidential administrations, there was mass incarceration of African-American men. And... um, This is uh, the kind of thing where I think a lot of liberals would tend to overgeneralize and think, ah, if someone's African-American, they're probably a Democrat. While that might be true statistically, we have to remember that um, people have individual experiences and we need to try to take these diverse perspectives to understand what's meaningful to different people. And so, many liberals that I know condemn Trump voters um, and think of them as sort of subhuman. Um, But we are all human and we all are going to need to continue to live in this country together 
And, um, and that's, that's what democracy requires. And part of doing that is understanding um, other people's perspectives. And it's not necessarily fun work to think about other views because we want to, it feels good to think that we're the right person, the right way of looking at it. Um, but I think we do need to try to understand that people have real reasons why they vote the way they do. And, um, and some of them might be thoughtless, but some of them are quite thoughtful. Uh, and so as we try to heal these divides and um, kind of uh, improve the fabric, the social fabric uh, going forward, because we all do need each other. Clearly, we're not gonna get rid of this pandemic unless we cooperate. Um, I think perspective taking is, is a really important piece of wisdom. Okay. Okay. So that's the second one. Yeah. So who is it? Who are we listening to? So we just listened to Jennifer Lerner, who is a professor of public policy management and decision science at Harvard Kennedy School, Harvard University. Okay. So what? So her field is what? Is decision science and public policy? She's a... She's a psychologist, but she's at, at the intersection of decision-making, emotions, and public policy. Interesting. So tell me, tell me what, what drew you to this? Um, I mean, I, I've got some thoughts. <laughs> but um, Yeah, I'm curious about this. But before I actually get to that, let me just tell you that this was recorded on the day of the uh, U.S. election, presidential oh, election. I was looking at so the like, date on our notes going, that date looks familiar. <laughs> it's not my yeah. birthday. What is that? <laughs> right so it's a heated day okay fair enough yeah and, and that may explain also part of her response mm, yeah it was obviously at the forefront of her mind yeah so what what's um what, what made you want to pick it out well i didn't think as much about the perspective taking which she highlighted in her uh, like it's a most dominant response theme that she had but i was talking about this part which said like we all need each other yeah and we're not going to get rid of the pandemic unless we cooperate. And to me, that's sort of a, this kind of thing that comes at the end and that is enabled by perspective taking is this theme of solidarity, which is, has appeared already multiple times also in response to previous questions. I think we handled it before uh, when we talked about what are the positive things that can happen. And uh, I think she's talking about it more from the perspective of like in order to survive the pandemic, we just need to pay attention to each other and to cooperate with each other. So I, I liked it. Yeah, well, we'll see what happens. Right? Yeah, that's right. Predictions are notoriously problematic as we're finding out as this series progresses. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, we, I think it's time to wrap up the episode. That's right. Yeah. All right, Eagle. You look after yourself uh, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Take care, Charles. Take care, Eagle. And that's it for today's episode of the World After COVID miniseries. Thank you to our listeners. Igor, big question. If people want to know more about the project, where do they go? They can go to the www.worldaftercovid.info. Please stay well and safe. Goodbye. <laughs>